Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 129, Interview with Astronaut Dan Tyne. Last time, we took an important step on the road to a robust commercial spaceflight industry and introduced SpaceHab to the stage. This privately developed competitor to Space Lab turned out to be a pretty snazzy addition to the Space Shuttle Orbiter. The crew got more room for experiments and storage, companies and universities got more opportunities to fly experiments, and SpaceHab got to pick up a little profit. We also grabbed the European science satellite Eureka, went for a quick walk outside, and pondered the Twinkie-like qualities of the Space Shuttle Orbiter. The next flight after STS-57 was STS-51, but as I mentioned last time, rather than diving right in, I've got something a little special. I'm Dan Tani. I was a NASA astronaut. I flew on STS-108 Endeavour. Then I flew on STS-120 Discovery. That took me to the space station where I became a crew member on Expedition 16 on the ISS. And I flew home on STS-122 uh, Atlantis. That's right. I interviewed an astronaut. In November of 2019, I was visiting the Kennedy Space Center and made sure to do one of my favorite KSC activities, the Dine with an Astronaut Lunch. For those who have not experienced it for themselves, this is basically just what it sounds like. For a few extra bucks, you get a nice lunch while a NASA astronaut talks about what it's like to fly in space. They walk around, say hi, do a question and answer session, and at the end, you can get a handshake and a photo. It's actually a really cool thing that the Visitor Complex does, and it's how I've met John Blaha, Jerry Ross, Wendy Lawrence, and on this trip, Dan Tani. Of course, me being me, I used my few seconds with an astronaut to plug my podcast, and Dan actually started listening. This is just one of many reasons why Dan is a pretty cool dude. Dan hasn't entered the narrative of the podcast yet, that'll come in 1996, but before becoming an astronaut, he worked at Orbital Sciences on the Transfer Orbit Stage, or TOS, a competitor to the inertial upper stage that we're already familiar with. TOS only flew on the shuttle once, and you guessed it, it was on STS-51. Dan graciously reached out and offered to tell me a bit about TOS and about the dramatic technical glitch it encountered at the moment that it was deployed. You may have noticed that this is a pretty lengthy episode. That's because in addition to discussing STS-51, we also covered a bunch of other questions that I was wondering about. When arriving at the launch pad, how do astronauts get from the van to the shuttle? Why do crew members always talk about how uncomfortable it was on the pad? How do various theme park rides compare to the real launch experience? And a whole bunch more questions like that. One quick note before we get into it. It would probably be best not even mention this, but this is the sort of thing that I would wonder about if I were a listener. You may hear the quality of the audio drop a few times. That's just caused by me switching to a backup recording when the video call dropped out for a moment. So there you go. Bonus technical peek behind the curtain. Oh, and since this is an audio-only medium and I carelessly introduced two images into the conversation, I'll just have to ask you to remember the two images that we discussed. When we talk about someone potentially having gone through re-entry while standing on the flight deck, that was Story Musgrave, and I've actually heard Story himself talk about this, so more on that in another episode. And when we were talking about timers all over the shuttle, we're talking about those little white kitchen timers with black buttons that are visible in so many space shuttle photos. I'll include a photo in the announcement tweet for this episode. Okay, enough preamble. Let's meet Dan. JP, good to see you. Good to see you again. Yeah, man. How are you doing? <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, yeah, so I guess what 
the main topic for today would be you mentioned that you uh, had some involvement with STS-51 before you were even selected as an astronaut and, you know, knew some stories about the uh, the uh, Perigee kick motor, I guess. Yeah. So um, one of my uh, first jobs, first job out of grad school was with a company called Orbital Sciences. Uh, that's oh, yeah. They, they used to be Orbital Sciences, then they became Orbital ATK and then uh, Northrop Grumman. But anyway, in the old days of orbital sciences, uh, there, it's it's sort of lost probably in the history books, but the way they were founded was three guys from Harvard Business School wrote a paper about the idea of commercializing space. And the, the uh, product that they envisioned was a commercial competitor to the IUS. The IUS is a, is a kick stage that goes from low Earth orbit out to some other orbit. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it was, uh, air force developed, uh, or it's used for, uh, military government and military satellites. Sure. And so the idea was, uh, these three guys thought they might be able to make a less expensive, uh, yet, you know, robust and human rated, uh, per, uh, kick stage, uh, commercially. And that was called the transfer orbit stage. So I came on board, okay. uh, early on in, in orbitals, uh, lifetime, and uh, started working on the the uh, transorbit stage or the toss, and the uh, the way it was uh, um, the structure back then was that Orbital was the prime contractor to NASA. However, okay. Martin Marietta was our subcontractor, and they did all the build uh, of the hardware and generally the software. And so we were sort of the sort of the middleman. But one of the things that we retained at Orbital was mission operations. And so uh, I got lucky enough to be the person to be pegged for doing the, the payload operations for the transfer, or, transfer orbit stage. And so uh, I got to put a team together and build a little uh, POC, a payload operation control center and, down at KSC and nice. uh, write the procedures that would, uh, that would work hand in hand with the astronaut procedures and the, the, the JSC procedures to to launch or deploy the transfer orbit stage out of the shuttle. And so okay. uh, it was a great job as a young engineer. It was a fantastic opportunity to um, get, really work with NASA tightly. I got to know the crew of SCS-51 uh, very well. And fast forward 20-something years, I got to fly with them, fly with three of them in space at the same time. And it was oh, wow. uh, just fantastic. What a, a kind of a, a coincidence in my career. But um uh, but yeah, so I'm intimately involved with uh, the the transfer orbit stage and its deployment from the space shuttle discovery. And um, uh, there there were uh, it's actually talked about a lot in terms of lessons learned for engineering. It was a oh. um, near catastrophic uh, event deploying this uh, upper stage and the X the ACTS Advanced Communication Technology Satellite uh, out of the payload bay. Um, and, uh, I've sat in some, uh, uh, seminars where they actually talk about this and it's, uh, the story gets a little convoluted like most stories do. So I thought, sure. uh, I could try to be a reference for you and give you, uh, from what I remember as, as the best firsthand knowledge of, of, uh, the incident. Sure. So I guess, could you start off by maybe, uh, contrasting it? Like, how is it different from the IUS? Cause I'm a little bit familiar with that since it was pretty popular in the early shuttle days. Um, it was designed to be a much simpler uh, uh, 
stage, right? Okay. So, uh, and and I can't remember why the what what makes the iOS different than than uh, the toss really. That's that's way back in my. <laughs> I would imagine it's still solid propellant on this, and like you know, yes. still a two stage. So like you know, I guess rather than contrasting the iOS, like why don't you tell me a little bit about what made toss toss? <laughs> sure, sure. You buy a big solid rocket motor, and mm-hmm. uh, and you want that because it's probably the safest, and it has the you don't have to worry about topping up fuel and stuff like that. And then yeah. you you put on top of it a ring, a smart ring of all the avionics and the reaction uh, control system. So it's a hydrazine uh, reaction control system, and so that provides the steering, the 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 the. the uh, kick motor itself has a gimbaled nozzle, so it can do uh, a lot of the pitch and the yaw, but then uh, roll control and also, um, you know, augmenting the control from the, the motors, uh, a uh, uh, reaction control system. Um, and then an integral part of the whole flight system is what's called the GSE, the, or I'm sorry, the FSE, the flight support system. And it's what okay. holds this whole thing into the shuttle payload bay. And so that's like the main uh, interface to the orbiter, right? It's the structural interface to the orbiter. And so, of course, when you're uh, uh, launching and all the dynamic uh, aspects of flight, you want that thing solidly in the payload bay. Uh, And then uh, when you're ready, then you uh, use some actuators and you elevate the the stack, the the toss and the act spacecraft. uh, So it's sort of angling out of the the payload bay at about a 45 degree angle. And then you, uh, the crew will press a button and then you have to separate the toss axe from the stuff that stays in the shuttle payload bay. And now that, that, uh, what has to be initially a solid connection that has to then sever so that it's, uh, that it's now free to separate is the whole, uh, it's the problem that, that, uh, that we encountered on the, on the flight, because that's a oh, wow. very complicated um, system, something that yeah. has to have structural integrity for, uh, you know, uh, pa- passively has to have structural integrity, but then you have to do something and then it separates. Now, almost every rocket uh, that we launch has that where stuff stages off and comes off. And so these mechanisms are very um, uh, complicated. They're high energy, and uh, but they, the reliability has to be. Uh, of course, you know, a hundred percent. It's kind of like, reminds me of the always never problem. You know, it has to always hold on real tight when they, you know, during ascent and never hold on when they want to get rid of it. That's exactly right. And many problems in spaceflight and probably uh, aviation also uh, has to do with things that don't perfectly separate when they were supposed to um, or separate uh, prematurely. So you're exactly right. It's always and never. Okay, so I'm, Ascent goes, they go up there, open a the payload bay doors, got the thing tilted back, and, you know, I guess what happens there? So the the uh, the uh, X spacecraft, the, the way the timeline was put together for STS-51, this is going to be a day one deploy. So it's a pretty active day for the crew. They oh, get yeah. up there. My memory is that it's on orbit seven um, that they are uh, intending to deploy. And yeah. uh, so you're right. They get up, payload bay doors open. They've got to reconfigure the cab and all that stuff. But now they're straight into the deploy checklist. And uh, we, of course, do some electrical checkouts, and we can see it from the ground. We we agree that yes, the spacecraft is ready and the toss is ready. 
and then they, uh, through switches in the cabin, they activate these uh, actuators that now tilt tilt up. And uh, meanwhile, uh, we have to do a bunch of calculations because the orbiter thinks can tell us where it thinks it is, um, but we also want to know where we are in, in inertial space relative to uh, the sun because we're going to burn, uh, we're going to take the X spacecraft to geosynchronous orbit. So there's some inertial measurement uh, calculations that have to be run and and yeah. uh, and then uh, we have a deploy moment that we are targeting and uh, for the first deploy attempt um, uh, well, let's see I think we activated something on the axe spacecraft and all mm-hmm. of a sudden we could not hear the crew the crew couldn't oh. crew couldn't hear us we could hear the crew but the crew couldn't hear us and so uh, we're on the ground giving the go, saying, you know, uh, we see the data, and, and but they never heard us. And so they waved off the deploy because that's the rule. And uh, and then they uh, did a deconfiguration, and then all of a sudden we could talk again. And we found out that we had a frequency uh, mismatch. Uh, oh. The S-band frequency from the shuttle was being interfered with by the S-band f- uh, frequency of the spacecraft. And so oh, wow. that was unanticipated. Now, the flight rule that we were up against was that since this is the end of a long day, if we didn't deploy on Rev 1, we were going to have to put the whole thing back down into the bay and wait the next day. But uh, we did a real-time call and a, a real-time waiver so that we were able to go for a deploy on the very next Rev. On, I think it's I think it was Rev 8 from, from memory. Oh, but wow. Okay. So it's a long day. Around. It's a long day for the crew. But, but they, yeah. were, uh, they were willing to do that. And so on the new frequency, on the backup frequency on the shuttle, no, no, no uh, frequency uh, clash. And so it was a nominal deploy, gave them the go. They ran the checklist perfectly, pressed the button, and, uh, and this, uh, the toss and axe were uh, separated. And they, they, we could hear the – I don't think we had real-time uh, video downlink – uh, but we could hear the crew talk about the the, the separation, and it was uh, they were excited, and and then in fact we uh, uh, they pointed the, the the kick motor. I think it burns forty minutes after deployment, and they were able to take the arm and point the camera uh, at the uh, toss, and we were able to see the the bright uh, ignition of the the uh, kick motor, and and wow. boy, we were we were happy, we were ecstatic. And- <laughs> Went home that night and, and uh, closed our deploy checklist, and, and we thought uh, life was, was uh, really good. So then we, uh, overnight, this is the, in the early shuttle days, you didn't have a lot of KU band coverage. And so yeah. uh, they, would, they would videotape, literally videotape the cameras, the payload bay cameras, and then they would downlink them uh, overnight while the crew was asleep. So okay. uh, they did that. So we went in the next day and we were watching the deploy from the payload bay cameras. And uh, when the when the separation happened, uh, uh, it was obvious that something dramatic had happened. And uh, the separation band, it gets a little technical because the separation band that that is you're right is solid until it, it, it until it has to separate completely is a relatively thin aluminum band with a groove down the middle of it and the intent is that it the intent is that it buckles and just breaks and so you should have a nice smooth uh, uh cut uh 
where the where the two separate. I see. Um, and uh, and this is so, what holds the spacecraft onto the flight support equipment. Yes, that's correct. Okay. It holds the toss to the to its cradle right. in the in the shuttle, um, and then the spacecraft, the AX spacecraft, is bolted onto the toss. Okay. So, so, and then I'm sorry again. This gets a little technical, but what happens is there's oh, yeah, a dig there's in. a there's an oval there's an oval stainless steel tube that uh, that is the circumference of the that that is the separation. Uh, uh, it, it provides the separation, and what happens is you put an explosive into that oval tube, and when it explodes, it goes round, and when it goes round, it's sandwiched in two aluminum rings, okay, if you can imagine. And those aluminum rings have the groove cut into it right where the that oval will become a circle. So when that oval becomes a circle because of the explosive, yeah. the, the they're called doublers. The aluminum doublers will flex a little bit and they'll snap. Um, and that's what provides the separation. Interesting. So um, we we saw the video of the next day. And when this when they separate not there's a ton of debris just flies everywhere and we can see cords hanging out and just stuff like a very ugly separation the crew who had never seen a spacecraft separate i'd never seen a spacecraft separate we didn't yeah. know really what to expect so saw right. all this debris and stuff coming out but had no idea what was normal uh or expected and so didn't think to call it down as abnormal um, and so we were just learning about this, watching the video replays. So let's see. So here's, so the detail, the technical details of what happened are that in that oval, that, that, that expanding tube, it's called an expanding tube separation system. So in that oval, you put an explosive cord, but in fact, you put two explosive cords in there because you have a primary one and a backup one. Right. Okay? Yeah. And what makes it a little bit complicated terminology wise is that that cord the explosive cord has two ends okay and then so you have a a, 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 a primary end of the cord and a backup end of the cord okay. the idea is you can you can put you can fire either end of the cord and the cord will completely separate but you for for reliability you actually put a charge into both ends of the cords right so that they both zzz, Blow, yeah. uh, both ignite. Right. And the way I describe this failure, it was just, it was a, 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 a it was a devious uh, terminology problem because you have an A chord and a B chord and you have a primary end of a, each chord and a backup end of each chord. Wow. And okay, so yeah. when you're doing the wiring, when you're doing the wiring and just looking at the wiring, you say A pry and A backup and B pry and B backup. And when they made the harness years before, somebody made an assumption and they tied A pry and B pry because that's what it looks like you should do. And A, A, A backup and B backup. It, sound, it sounds like you have two ends of a pry cord and two ends of a backup cord, but you don't. Yeah. You have, you have a, an A cord and it has two ends and a B cord, and it has two ends. Because on the, the switches that the astronauts uh, throw, it's, uh, I believe it was, I was looking for the drawing, couldn't find the drawing, but I believe it was primary and secondary cords, 
we didn't call it A chord and B chord inside the cabin. <laughs> Adding to the terminology fun. <laughs> right. So now you've got pry, you've got secondary, you've got backup. And so we, we, the people that made the toss, wired this thing wrong from the beginning. We, uh, some of the post-flight analysis says, well, they should have tested this thing end to end. Well, we did. I mean, we, we went in and we made sure that when the crew threw the switch that said pry, the, the lights came on that we expected, which would be A pry and B pry. Yeah. Right. Well, turns out we, we blew both chords at the same time, right? Because when we did, when we fired A pry and B pry, it was the pry ends of the two chords. And so we blew both chords at the same time, which is the absolute thing you are not allowed to do on one of these separation systems. Yeah. You may only blow one chord at a time. And so when we blew both chords, we didn't just circularize that tube. We blew that tube to smithereens. Oh, wow. So, so, so that only are, not only did, so those doublers that are supposed to bend and snap were shattered. We put, I'm going to say hundreds of pieces of aluminum shrapnel in the payload bay. We, yeah. we, the, the, the debris, uh, uh, punctured the, uh, the lining of the payload bay in many places, but unbelievably we missed hydraulic lines. We missed major cables. We missed, there was a ton of stuff that we missed. Yeah, it's like APUs which, back there. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like APUs back oh, there. APUs? I'm like running through my head. <laughs> yeah. It's, so it's about, you know, it's about 20, about this, this line, this line of action is, uh, you know, it's aft, aft cargo bay. Um, it, it would have, it would have been radial. So it wouldn't, it wasn't going into the ohms engines, wasn't going to the, uh, the, uh, SSMEs, but yes, hydraulic lines, um, uh, oxygen lines, there are a million things that would have been really, really bad. So, so anyway, so we're, you know, our eyeballs are, you know, <laughs> watching this video and we knew, we, we knew something bad had happened, but, um, uh, but the shuttle systems all checked out and really the only um effect that it had on the flight was that there were now all these sharp edges that they didn't expect in the payload bay and uh jim newman and uh carl waltz were going on eva later in the flight and they were going to go down the whole uh length of the payload bay testing out some uh some station uh techniques and tools right and uh, they were restricted from going past the plane of of the of that damage so they can go through whatever 70 percent of the payload bay but not the aft end of the payload bay so that i see that was a an operational effect but but when we got the when 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 the discovery landed successfully and everything and and we went and retrieved our our uh, airborne support equipment the cradle um we it was it was shocking that we got away with uh such a uh, uh such a contingent <laughs> such a such a you know, poor, uh, outcome. Um, yeah. and, and you look at it and you think, you know, it was just diabolical. The naming, the name, the nomenclature of the different parts that had to get put together, uh, was just so diabolical that nobody, nobody caught it. And so, you know, all the lessons learned briefings that I'd seen talk about, you know, you can't just go, uh, you can't do end to end 
functioning just by what the, the drawing says the function is. You got to look at the hardware and figure out, make sure that your end-to-end -end function is is the way you intend on the hardware. But of course, it's easy to say and it's easy to look back and say coulda, shoulda, woulda. But um, it was a uh, pretty pretty dramatic, and I've I've heard it called the most significant um, close call uh, on the shuttle program. I don't know who puts that list together, but um, <laughs> but we 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 certainly it's a lesson I carry with me every day about. Uh, about making sure you know the design meets the hardware, um, yeah, and, uh, and then the operations. So, did they like? I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, the terminology problem it makes complete sense, and it's, it just shows how important it is to really kind of, you know, why, you know, it, people joke about it, but they say that naming things is the hardest thing in programming, and I think in engineering <laughs> in general, it's it's, it's super important because you need to have that that context and understanding. Uh, I'm curious, did you, did they ever like just bring this thing out, you know, to some range and actually fire it as it would be fired in the orbiter and see what would happen? Or no. was that not feasible? No, we tested it. No, we did not. But we tested it like we would test everything else. And so we had what's called a breakout box. And okay. so we would, we took the harness and threw it in a breakout box. And then we wired up the breakout box to be, to show what signals and power is being sent through. And so then, so when the, when the checkout procedure said, okay, uh, astronaut simulator, uh, go to pry, uh, pry arm fire. And then on the breakout box, pry a and pry B lit up and they go great. <laughs> right. Uh, so the, 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 the effort was completely made to say, we're going to do an end to end test. We're going to make sure this thing is built to print. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, the error was way back when the, the harness was designed and it was, uh, uh, it was, the intent wasn't uh, caught, and you know part of this is the the separation system. Uh, it's called a super zip. Uh, is made. Super I can't zip. remember even who super zip. Yeah, and I can't remember <laughs> who makes it. But you know, it's it's a it's a it's a uh, it's a part that you buy, and it right. has its own nomenclature. They don't they don't think that their nomenclature is any it has any particular ambiguity. They have an A chord and a B chord and a primary end and a backup end and so just alone that part doesn't have much ambiguity but then you put it on you put it in a system that has switches in the cockpit that say primary and secondary it just it's just a it was really an unfortunate uh, crash of uh, terminology that sounds really similar and you think you know what's going on and and uh I know it's it, it is uh, it was unfortunate. So we got yeah, away but, with one there. Yeah, you know, you got it's. It also kind of shows, I guess, the it, so why it's so important to focus so much on interfaces with all these systems. Because I'm thinking, uh, like, okay, interfaces, got, right? Like you've got a company that's making the Super Zip, which is going to Martin, which is building the thing and operated yeah. by Orbital Sciences, yeah. interfacing with uh, whoever made the flights, the the cradle, interfacing with yeah. Rockwell, making the orbiter. Operated right. by astronauts trained down in Houston. <laughs> That's exactly right. No, so uh, every time I watch a Saturn V launch, uh, you know, film of a Saturn V launch, I've never gotten to see one in person. I am so impressed that that thing works because, yeah, first stage was built by Boeing in, uh, in Huntington, I guess. And the second stage was made by Martin and uh, whoever. Anyway, all three stages were met by completely independent contract or different contractors. 
And yeah. this is pre-fax machine, right? This yeah. was if you had a if you had a, a drawing change to your interface, you had to you know you had to wrap it, duplicate it, wrap it, fly it out to the west coast, you know, and then they had to unwrap it and, and understand the change of the interface, uh, the, the the complexity, and and uh, I, I think the same thing with the ISS, you know, with uh, parts made from completely different nations and and. Uh, uh, however, at least in most of the ISS was designed in, in uh, the electrical age, electric data age, where yeah. your drawings could at least be digitized or, or scanned and, and sent quickly. Um, but uh, interfaces will kill you; they will absolutely kill you. And, and uh, you have to really, as a designer, an engineer, you really your your attention. You've got to be highly tuned once once you have an interface, um, especially uh, from different. Uh, companies or different pieces, and you got to completely understand uh, what the interface control drawing is telling you on both sides, and uh, and how to integrate it. I think that also kind of you know highlights maybe why SpaceX goes to kind of a weird amount of effort to build stuff in house. People have commented on, and I think part of what they're going for is they are always looking for way to, ways to make things cheaper. But I also think I'd imagine that a big part is just like hey, like. We made this, you know, we got the metal, we built this, we know what this is, we know the software, all this stuff. I think that's, I think that is exactly right. And, and so not only did they build it, but the guy in the next or the, the, the team on the next cubicle uh, designed it. So if you have any question, uh, you go to them, you go, did you mean, you know, did you mean this? And they can tell you, oh yeah, that's exactly what we did or we didn't do. So I, I don't fault them uh, at all for that. There, there is. There's, you know, there's benefit for having diversity in your design in terms of uh, uh, sure. parts and stuff, but there, the, the, there is hidden complexity in there, and, and you, that's an exactly that's exactly a great point. Is that uh, um, having the people that build all the different parts all under one roof and they can talk together, have lunch together, uh, is a real uh, is one way to help uh, avoid these uh, interface uh, mix-ups. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the trade-off. I'm just thinking that through. Like you know, like you said, like you can end up with a simpler design with fewer interfaces, but you're going to have more commonality. So that you know, you know, if there's a problem with the tank, okay, well now there's a problem with every tank in your entire system. Whereas right. you know, you get that diversity and kind of you know uh, different engineering approaches and maybe a different you know unlikely to have common failure modes. But then you have to uh, grapple with the additional you know you better get your interfaces right. That's interesting. Right. And, and honestly, in the early days of SpaceX, I was looking at them aghast. They're building their own flight computers. They, yeah. Who builds their own flight computers? Their own batteries, their own actuators. They think that, you know, we have specialists that, you know, Eagle Pitcher makes, they've been making space batteries for, you know, dozens and dozens of years. And, and uh, you know, why should they be making their own batteries? Well, you know, it turns out it, it worked out for SpaceX and, and, uh, and one of the big advantages for them uh you know, having everything in house is not only control of the of the supply chain, but uh, also, yeah, you you the, the the that design was that battery was designed for that spacecraft. You know? Right, and right. The, the match is going to be perfect. So, actually, not to go on too much of a SpaceX tangent, but I'm curious: have you been following the uh, Starship development at all? I'm sorry, I have not. Um, so I I I don't know much. Well, I'll just briefly say this and you know uh if you don't know anything about it that's fine but like what they've been doing has been kind of controversial which is they're building their next generation launch vehicle and they've essentially just 
I think you could characterize what they're doing as just going for it. They basically yeah. started building extremely rough prototypes out in like the middle of nowhere and just trying it and they blow up a lot <laughs> like not on right. purpose sometimes on purpose right. not often not on purpose and again i think the word to use is aghast people are like you don't build rockets in fields and they just kind of shrug and keep <laughs> going and i think the argument is that like you know yeah you have to do all the real work and do all the verification and make sure things right but also i think they're like you're never you'll never learn more than just trying it and seeing if it fails in the way that you expect you don't know where so, the boundary of the design is until you test both sides of the boundary. And so yeah. I, that's if you if if they or anybody yeah. has the uh, resources to do that, that's fantastic. Now, you know, the real you can understand the real limits of your design. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I spent I spent a lot of time not criticizing uh, SpaceX, but being skeptical of them. And uh, yeah. every at every turn, I've been proven wrong. So now I. I no longer, I, I now, my, I, I listen to the stories and I, I, I'm no longer, uh, uh, skeptical. Uh, I'll wait to see if these things happen and I'll be darned if more, more often than not, uh, you know, I mean, the guy made a first stage fly back and land on a dime. It's unbelievable. It's Have just you seen unbelievable. it in person. I've not seen it in person. No. You got to um, make but, an attempt uh, you know, to get down there. I was yeah, there for the Falcon Heavy maiden launch. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, the three return, two out of three, right. Yeah, and so uh, just but I was very lucky. A guy used to be on my team, uh, he went transferred down to uh, Kennedy and got us, you know, a place to sit in a field right outside the VAB. Yeah. Uh, wow. And That's just fantastic. seeing that thing just going, I'm like, is it ever going to pitch? It's like right over us. And then, you know, seeing <laughs> – you, you see them – you just see them coming back like – Oh my God, those buildings <laughs> yeah. are flying at us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's quite spectacular. And what a, what an accomplishment. And, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I would have bet a paycheck that that was not possible. Just, I didn't think the physics was possible. I didn't think that you can get something going Mach four or five at that point, uh, turned around and give it enough energy to, to, uh, slow it down and everything. I, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed and, uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, I, I, I still think that uh, there are other um, innovative space companies that are in the marketplace, and that's good. But, but yeah. uh, I've stopped being I've stopped being a hundred percent skeptical about what SpaceX is doing because right. it hasn't paid off for me yet. <laughs> right. Uh, so I guess speaking of like you know, current launch providers, did do I understand correctly, correctly that you're working with Orbital now or whatever whoever they are now? Or so yeah. So I. Uh, uh, I was with Orbital Sciences from uh, from almost the very beginning of their existence, and then I uh, got a government job down in Houston, so I went down to Houston and, and uh, trained to fly in space for 16 years. And then uh, uh, after retiring from NASA, I went back to uh, Orbital, uh, which then became Orbital ATK because they merged. I did that for, I think, three years, and then I took a quick break and I went to Japan uh to be a teacher because nice. I thought uh, I thought it would be fun to share my uh, experiences uh, uh, and pass it on to the next generation. And uh, so then, uh, when returning from Japan, um, I uh, decided to change industries for the first time in my career. Uh, I guess besides teaching, so now I work for a nonprofit. But nice. uh, but I I uh, uh, still have friends at at what's now north of Grumman uh, 
I guess, merged. They merged with North of Grumman and assumed the North of Grumman name. And so uh, uh, they're now North of Grumman, I don't know, Space Division or something. And and uh, so I still have friends there and still talk to them and still follow them, of course. And uh, uh, I don't know. So I, I, I try to keep my connection there, but but not not I'm not employed by them. I got you. Yeah, part of why I ask, just because what's especially fun about uh, them for me is that Antares launch is like right in our backyard, you know? Yeah. Like, I've gone tomorrow to, night. I think, is there one tomorrow night? Yeah, it's tomorrow evening. Uh, 8.30, I think, is launch time. And I'm trying to figure out what field I can stand in here in the in Fairfax County to uh, to get a line of sight out to, to Wallops. And yeah, it's it's fantastic. So when I, when I came back to Orbital after uh, my astronaut career, um, I got to work on the Cygnus program. And so nice. that's the c- cargo delivery vehicle to the space station. And, uh, uh, and that, that's the, the vehicle is launching tomorrow and launches on the Antares, which is the or- orbital um, uh, built and designed uh, launch vehicle. So it's, uh, I've got friends up and down that, uh, that product. So it's a lot of fun. What I especially like about Antares, I mean, other than, you know, outside of the engineering and just making it work is uh you can get because it's at wallops you can get arguably too close to the launches <laughs> there's a there's a pier that's yeah. about two miles away and it's like i just like set up shop i was like oh <laughs> this yeah is a right thing. <laughs> have you been have you been out for a launch i've never seen a launch in oh no yeah i saw a minuteman but i n- never saw an Antares launch uh, out there i was always working console uh here at at uh at the home home place in uh and Dulles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, Did, I would definitely recommend it because it's not too long of a drive and, you know, yeah, it's, it's right. crazy to kind of come right back home and be like, all right, well, no planes involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Were you at the, were you at the uh, mishap that they had right off the launch pad that we had right off the launch pad? Uh, no, no, no. I was, uh, you know, I was still working in New York city at that time. So I was watching it live on the internet, just like, oh boy, that's yeah. a rough day yeah. for everyone. I, and I heard it was, it was uh, clear that you could almost be too close to that. The, the people that were there, uh, it was uh, a very dynamic event for them. So safely, fortunately, nobody was injured, but but uh, I understand the volume was very high. <laughs> uh, so if you're uh, on board, I got a couple of just kind of like random grab bag questions sure. for yeah. you. Yeah, uh, no problem at all. So <laughs> this will give you an idea. Like, so you mentioned like apologizing for getting down in the weeds, which is kind of like all I do in the podcast is like, well, that's it, what I, yeah, that's what I like about your podcast is you do get down in the weeds. And so it's, uh, uh, it's really fascinating for me, but it's hard for me to share it with anybody like my wife or anybody who doesn't really, isn't that quite, quite as interested in the weeds as, as, uh, as I yeah. am and you are. And it used to be easier. Cause I tell people like, Oh, I introduced you to it. You could just start at the beginning, but now it's like, Oh, there's quite a few episodes. Maybe that's <laughs> easy for me to yeah. say now. Um, so to give you an idea of something that's this far down the weeds, when you take the van out to the shuttle pad, right? you get out of the van, literally what's the next step? Because is it just like you get into an elevator right at ground level and go all the way up to that catwalk? I think the Apollo guys would go up onto the launch platform and walk across to a second elevator or, you know, what, just how did you get from van to shuttle? Sure. So, uh, so the van, uh, drives up the ramp drops us off onto the launch platform, right? You're on launch platform. And uh, what's cool is that every other time you've done that, you've had to do a badge exchange at the fence and there's workers everywhere. But this time there's a driver, there's seven uh, strap-in personnel up at, up, up, up in the 
the you know, the white room and then uh, or in the vehicle and then the seven of you, assuming there's seven. And yeah. so, yeah, you get out and then there's a uh, oh, one of the one of the strap in uh, personnel is down there waiting for you. Uh, we like to get out there five minutes early and then we can walk around the the vehicle and, and look up and gawk. And um, <laughs> uh, we, we, my, the 120 crew that I was on, we did a huddle uh, in a, sort of a teamwork huddle there. And, and nice. uh, it's just an awesome moment. And then you're right. I mean, you just get onto the elevator and you're holding your uh, little uh, air conditioner, basically it's air, air, it's a, it's fan. that's just blowing air through your suit, just keeping you cool. And so you, uh, oh, and uh, we have a, uh, one of the strap-in guys is uh, helping us with our helmets. So you're holding your helmet in a bag and you're holding your uh, cooling unit uh, in the other hand. And the seven of you plus the ones, the eight of you get in the elevator and you hit one, uh, the 195 level, 195. 195 level is the, is the, where the white room is for the uh, shuttle. And so, uh, yeah, you, you, you get out of the elevator and you're right on the 195 level. They'll take all your helmets and have them ready for you inside the, the vehicle uh, for strap-in. Um, and so it's, it's literally get out of the car, look around, get in the elevator, quick ride up to 195, out. And then uh, the strap-in sequence is uh, uh, CDR first, upstairs, and... Uh, uh, MS closest to the wall. Uh, I can't remember what number it is one, two, one, two, three. I think that's where MS three is the seat position. Um, anyway, closest to the farthest away from the hatch downstairs, and they strap those in first, and then pilot, and then uh, the MS in the middle seat downstairs, and then MS one, then MS two. And so, on my first flight, I was MS two, so I was last to be strapped in, which is great because then I had. 30 minutes to hang out on the, on the launch gantry and uh, uh, look around and, uh, and uh, feel the breeze and think about what good fortune has brought me to that point uh, in my career. And then I also get to use the bathroom. So, because there's a, there's the, the last bathroom on earth is, uh, (laughs) is up there. And uh, so uh, that's, that's sort of a tradition. So you got to do that uh, and then get strapped in. So I guess since you're talking about getting strapped in, like something that's always kind of uh, surprised me is, and I think it's easy for me to be surprised just reading it in a book, is how uncomfortable is it sitting on your back like that? Because they always make a pretty big deal out of it. So I guess I'm curious, like, is it as bad as has been described? And is there a good way I could replicate this at home? Do I have to like lay on my back like on a backpack or something? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, probably... um, uh, Fill a backpack with like uh, cans of uh, you know soda and uh, uh, like a you know like a rolled up newspaper and because you are uh, the the um, you know we are in a harness in a so we've got a parachute and an entire survival kit including a raft and everything sort of in our in our uh, back backpack right. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it, it, if you have to bail out of that thing, you have to carry, you know, you're going to be jumping out of the shuttle with, uh, you know, parachute, oxygen bottle, um, uh, you know, raft and all your survival kit. So all that stuff is in your, that you're lying on and they try to make it comfortable for you and they try to put a thin pad there. Um, but, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, 
Is it uncomfortable? Yes, it's uncomfortable because you can feel primarily it's the oxygen bottle that's sort of digging into you. Um, but, uh, you know, you get the privilege of being in the shuttle and uh, it's, uh, it's just incredibly cool. The, I mean, the part of the discomfort is you're there for maybe two or three hours. And, yeah. uh, you know, so you're so every little uh, poke at you uh, starts to get aggravated and but you know what? You're there with your best friends and you're joking around and it's the, the time, time waiting for launch is, uh, uh, it's, it's a fun time cause you're, you're all geared up and you're excited. And so it's, uh, you know, it, it's uncomfortable, but you know what? I'll, I'll do it again. <laughs> I'd be happy to do it again. <laughs> uh, but by any chance, did you listen to the episode I did on STS 51 I where, uh, they unstrapped? <laughs> so, is that yeah i believe i did and uh oh they unstrapped because they thought they were going to scrub yeah and the rumor is or you said that there's uh some recorded uh history that yeah. uh they were they were walking around somebody was on the flight deck some mid deck guy was on the flight deck and uh, just it's, it's the other way some flight was- deck guy was on the mid deck uh chatting around and uh and uh yeah so there's a right that's right there's uh i i did hear that and uh, uh, I, I was unaware of that, um, of that. I had heard a story. I don't know what uh, flight, but I had heard a story of, uh, oh, I was telling another astronaut, another former, about that incident. And uh, he was relaying that on his uh, flight, uh, there was a, another crew member, I won't name anybody, but sure. was uh, decided that they wanted to film entry. And so was a downstairs crew member, but was upstairs on the flight deck during uh, re-entry. And uh, he might have been, he might have been up on the flight deck uh, standing there uh, at touchdown <laughs> or, or it, close to it. So might be uh maybe this guy. Over here. <laughs> uh, maybe I, can, I can't, uh, if he's EVA, that might be the guy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so actually, this is perfect. So leading into EVA, uh, this, again, weird specific questions. Could you tell me what the texture of the launch and escape suit is like? And how is it any different with the EMU? Just like, does it look like canvas yeah. or like, you know, you, you see it a lot, but you never right. have a chance to touch that kind of stuff. Yeah, the launch and entry suit, the outside of it is fabric. So it feels like canvas. It feels like uh, it feels like a tent. But it's a little softer than it feels a little softer than a tent would, um, so it's uh, pleasant, pleasant to the feel on the outside. The of course with the rings and everything, there are hard things that that you know that you bump into that can hurt a little bit. Um, right. But the outside of that is, I would say, it feels like canvas. The EMU, the outside of it is all beta cloth. Beta cloth is, uh, I'm told, it's uh, woven fiberglass, so oh, it's wow. very. Um, slippery it's really oh. slippery and so uh when you touch it it's it has um that it's slippery in a in a very distinct way and i'm trying to think of something that is uh um equivalent i, I can't it's it's like a nylon fabric like a windbreaker but even slipperier than that wow um, as if it's teflon um, so, so yeah, the, 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 the feel of the outside of the, of the, uh, EMU is, uh, it's this, it is a very particular feel called, and it's beta, beta cloth. Wow. Um, I never realized And that. it's really tough. It's really tough. 
of course. I mean, that's why they use it. Um, yeah. But uh, but not unpleasant to to rub up against and to to feel. That's fascinating. I would never have guessed it was slippery. Yeah, I guess the best sometimes uh, old gloves get passed around, get moved around as, as exhibit items, and you know kids can try on an old an old glove. Yeah. And if it's real, if it's a real glove, it's a if it's a an actual glove that was made, but it's been long decommissioned. That you can you can get that feel and, and feel what what uh, that beta cloth feels like. Actually, that's another perfect segue because my next question was going to be: I saw an article. So I know you've done some EVAs, so I'm wondering if you could shed some light on. I saw that apparently it's very common for people to damage or lose their fingernails after an EVA. Can oh, you yeah. explain what's up with that? Oh yeah, no, I've I've uh, yeah. So you know, uh, we call them space walks, but you're not using your feet or your legs. Sometimes you'll clip your boots into something to stabilize yourself. But, but, you know, this is a spacewalk is a hand intensive, um, activity. And so your hands are, are the gloves are custom fit to you. There are about, there were at the time 25 or so custom shapes based on real astronaut hands and the first thing they do when you get there is they try to figure out which of those your hand will fit into. And if you're lucky, you have a weird shaped hand and they have to make a, a custom glove for you. So yeah. a, a glove is named, you know, your glove, but or the, the, the Tawny glove. But there is no Tawny glove because I fit into two or, diff, two or three different um, uh, other gloves. So they, they can adjust the size. So they custom fit you into a glove and the, the fitting the glove fitting can take uh, can be four, five, six different sessions. You go in wow. and you try it on, and then you, you want the right uh, amount of uh, fit, right? So you don't want your finger jammed into the fingertip, but you, yeah. you don't want it not in the fingertip. And then it's different when it's uh, when you're uh, inflated and everything. And so, uh, so there's a lot of attention because you're using your hands all the time, and so. Yeah. Uh, and you're, and you know, the glove wants to be like this, you know, in, yeah. in neutral position and anything else you do, if you want to widen your hand or narrow your hand, it takes force. Just oh, the, the position is like, the, I thought it was more like splayed all the way open. Like a, no, imagine no, like there's a, a natural position. There's a natural position. It's sort of, you know, holding a bowling ball kind of shape, but okay. you know, if you want to do anything, uh, you want to hold on to anything or open up your hand, it's, it just takes force. And so your fingernails just take a beating because they are being pressed against the inside of that glove and they're, there's force on them. It feels like all the time. When, when you can clip on to structure and you have 10 minutes or five minutes uh, of, of you know, nothing to do on the, on the timeline, it's just so relaxing, so nice to get to relieve your fingers of, of the, the pressure of holding on. Wow. And so um, uh, we, we practice uh, in the pool you know, we generally we do five or so practices in the pool for every EVA we do out in the uh, out in space. And uh, and you get in that thing and you're you're working your hands for six or seven hours in the pool. And and uh, if you're if you have an EVA heavy flight, you're in that pool, maybe, you know, once a week, maybe twice a week sometimes. And yeah, I, I used to have bruises up and down my fingernails um, and you try to clip them you know, tight and everything, but, uh, uh, you, you could get, you, you could see bruises up and down your fingernails and where they separate out and you really have to be careful of them. 
and then um, and then in space, the same thing can happen, especially if you're doing a couple EVAs in a week, and uh, and even there a little more so. You're of course. If you let go in the pool, that's a bad thing because you shouldn't let go. But if you let go yeah. in space, it's it's worse. So so the you know the the pucker level is a little higher in space, and so I think you you work a little bit harder. And uh, um, yeah, so your fingernails take a beating, and uh, that's absolutely true. And I'd imagine also that like when you're out there, you got like kind of adrenaline going, and so it's not to come back inside that you really feel like oh no. <laughs> exactly right, right. And you 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 know you. Uh, you work through it. If your fingernails hurt, well, hey, I'm I'm EVA here. You know, yeah. let's let's you know that's that's a minor issue, and I'm not going to complain about it. But then you get in, then you can complain about it. Uh, it's just another kind of sp- really specific one. So you sure. spent a fair amount of time on ISS, which had um constant machinery and circulation fans and everything. So I'm curious, uh-huh. what was it like the first time you got to sit in a quiet room after getting back? <laughs> <laughs> was it weird? Did you even notice? Um, you know, I I don't remember that. That that's an interesting that's an interesting point. Um, I will say though that the U.S. segment um, is much quieter than the Russian segment. Russian yeah. segment, uh, but I lived my my I lived in the Cayuta back in the service module, so uh, oh, wow. you know I kind of got used to the uh, uh, noisier environment. Um, back in the Russian segment, but when you go through uh, PMA one and now you're in the the lab or the you know the node of the lab, uh, the U.S. segment is significantly much more uh, quiet, significantly more quiet. You would notice that. You would definitely notice that. But um, I didn't notice. I didn't. That that became that became the normal background noise for me. So I don't I don't remember uh, uh, a the quiet, the, the, the dead quiet, um, when it came back. Now, when I came back from my long duration, uh, four months in space, I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so there was never any quiet, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, I, I don't, I don't remember that moment. That's a good question that, that nobody's, uh, brought that up. So I, astronauts have to work out for like hours a day. So I'm curious yep. how, you know, what were your relationship with that was? Were you, was it just the kind of thing where like, you know, you're a fit enough guy that that's just like, you know, normal to you. Was it something that would like, you know, you, you would know that you just had to get over with and you would kind of dread or like, is it just something you didn't really think about and you just did it because you have to do it? So, um, it's my guess that 80% of astronauts are gym rats love to work out. I'm yeah. not one of those guys. <laughs> oh no. And so I'm not, um, but of course, it's part of my job, and it's my responsibility to 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 be in shape. Um, and then, but you're right; we have two hours of exercise scheduled a day, and uh, um, it's good because I'm it's tracked or it's tracked. I have to log my I have to log my reps. I have to log my you know the, how much time I was doing it because they this is all data that they want to know based yeah. on you know so so that was good for me. That was motivating enough for me to of course, do everything that was asked of me. Um, but, uh, I was in space with, uh, Peggy Whitson. Um, and, uh, Peggy is, she's a goddess. I mean, she is not only is she the hardest working, uh, astronaut I, I know, but, um, she works out. So like, you know, I would get up early and I'd go down and 
gets them out of the lab and there she's working out already. So she likes to work out before the morning DPC, the morning meeting. And then uh, fortunately, there were only three of us on orbit because uh, she was on the exercise equipment, you know, uh, a lot. And so but we never had a schedule. We never had a schedule clash. But um, but, you know, with six on board or seven coming up, you know, that that we're going to have to think about be more conscious. They have to be more conscientious of, of scheduling. But so, you know, I in I there are things I really liked about exercising. I liked the workout. I liked the getting the blood moving around. I like the force on my body. I liked uh, doing the, it's called weight, you know, weight training, although it's just pushing against force. And uh, because it just felt good to get, you know, pressure on your bones and felt good to get the blood moving. But, but uh, I rarely, I can't imagine that I did more than was asked of me. Um, I would, I would do my two hours. uh, But, uh, but unlike Peggy, I wasn't waking up on Saturday so I can get an extra run in the, the treadmill uh, is was is or was for me uh, painful. I did not enjoy the treadmill at all. You're wearing a harness because because you have to be pulled down onto it, and you have yeah. to be pulled down onto it about the weight that you know with the number of pounds that you weigh. Yeah, and uh, and through these bungees, so now you're pressed onto this thing, and then you have to put on shoes which you don't normally do. So the only time I wore shoes on my four months was to put running shoes on to run. And yeah. so you tighten up the running shoes. Now your feet hurt. And uh, it's a very technique. It's a very technique-specific device. And so, you know, I, I would get my – I'd get a couple miles in, and I would I would mix that in. Uh, the bike is easier just because it's just easier on your you – know, you're not – you know, the forces on your body aren't, aren't as great. Um, but then I got back, and then uh, Sonny William – decided she'd run the Boston marathon on the thing. And I thought, Oh man, you know, for me to do 20 minutes on it was, uh, was, I didn't, you know, that was an endurance for me. And, uh, and then there's, there's Sonny doing a, doing the Boston marathon on it. So hats off to her. (laughs) Pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, all right, so I got a couple of little ones here, and like again, like please cut me off if you gotta go. Otherwise, no, I'm, these, these are enjoyable. I, I I love talking about it. Uh, so this one, I'm gonna send you a link uh, in the little chat here, and actually, I got it from one of your flights. Uh, what is up with these little timers? I see stuck everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. You know, it's what's you know what's funny. I'm just looking at the picture now. What's funny is. Uh, it's the thing you use a dozen times a day on a flight day, on a, in the shuttle at least. Um, and it's the one thing they don't give you training on. And it's got too many buttons. And so yeah. they go, give me a minute 30 timer. And I'm like, hold on, hold on, hey, what? hold on, hold on, hold on. And uh, no, because, uh, because um, uh, in the shuttle, and less so in the station, but in the shuttle, there are a lot of procedures that are time dependent. So when you're opening the payload bay doors, do you... You throw the switch, you start a timer, and then you expect the payload bay doors to open in two minutes and 40, whatever. And and so uh, uh, we use them all the time. And so um, or during uh, even during ascent, you know, you you, you put the timer, you'll, you'll set the timer for uh, Tal. Right. And so, you, you know, as an MS, you want to you want to be ahead of you want to be helping the crew. So you go again. Okay, and you were a flight engineer, right? Yeah, I was an MS2. Right, right. So so you can you, you set timers as a heads up. You set timers because the procedure calls on it. 
And uh, yeah, we have them. We have them everywhere. And uh, the the big advice is uh, that the the wise old astronauts give you, and then you learn. You make your mistake, and then you learn that that's what you should do. Is you put a little dot on the timer, a little paper dot, you know, one of those sticker dots, and you write on the dot what that timer is. This timer yeah. is because you set a twenty-seven minute timer, and then yeah. beep beep beep, you can go. Well, I don't know. I don't know what that was. <laughs> Something's that happening. Timer? Right, something, something. We we need to be aware of something. I don't know what it is, and so uh, and so. Yeah, you're always peeling the dot off and putting a new dot and writing the new uh, thing. And uh, I would say in in on the shuttle, you saw them everywhere. On station, we must have had some of them, but um, but either the timer isn't as critical. The the times when you're uh, doing it, we you know we run our procedures. We used to in the in the old old days when I was there on a laptop. And you have a clock in the laptop. So when you run the procedure, you have a clock right there in front of you. And you can right. uh, sometimes a procedure will ask you to write down the time and then write down the time again so that, you know, the time is built into the procedure. Um, but anyway, yeah, those are there. They were everywhere. Probably we probably had, you know, a half a dozen, maybe a dozen uh, on the in the in the shuttle. And uh, uh, I, I might have one uh, in my uh, in my in my my uh stuff that uh stuff i i my memories from space flight box so yeah uh because you're you use them so much and especially in shuttle yeah that's cool so uh also on shuttle have you uh tried that shuttle simulator at kennedy visitor complex uh no let's see. which what shuttle simulator? oh the launch oh yes i have the, the launch the ride. experience yeah the so ride. and i'm here uh, obviously nothing's going to compare but i'm curious like is it anywhere close to, you know, is it even in the right direction for people who can't experience it on their own? Like, you know, does it get, uh, give you a decent idea of what you would yeah. uh, feel? I mean, it, it does, you know, we, we were uh, spoiled because we got to train in the, what's called the motion based simulator. So, yeah. which is a really dynamic simulator when the, when the, when the commander moves the stick, you know, you're, you're moving forward. And, and uh, for launch, we go full, we go a full 90 degrees, pitch up so you're you are full fully on your back i think yeah. the one in ksc probably only goes about 30 degrees you feel like you're plastered into your seat yeah but I, I suspect you're only about 30 degrees up but the the motion-based simulator does a full rotation to 90 um and so but i it, it's exciting and and you know your your brain is fooled by the visuals and so you know it's it's fun to watch the visuals and uh uh so it, and you know, I've I've gotten to ride it a few times with uh, tour groups, and it's fun just to watch everybody experience the 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 uh, the ride because it's it's close. You know, it certainly is close, and it's fun to to shake around. And uh, it's hard to get Miko right, of course, yeah. because um, you know the the instant loss of force. But but um, I don't know. It's certainly I I've been certainly happy to do it again. I think one big tell of how, you know, it can be a far cry from the real thing. It's just an hour to the West. Cause, uh, so they have that ride out at Disney with the, uh, with the centrifuge and every single time you get on it, like I get on it and they spin you up to like two G for like 10 seconds. <laughs> and even having done it, even knowing what to expect, even knowing what's physically happening and having done it before, every time it ramps up to even just two G for a few seconds, I go, I've made a mistake. I shouldn't be on this. <laughs> And I just think like, man, is that the, G for that, eight minutes. I, I've not done that. Is that the flight to Mars one? Yeah, uh, Mission Space. Uh, Mission Space. Is that the one that apparently people throw up on? 
Yeah. So what I tell people, and this is funny because like, so what it, it in fact is the giant centrifuge because that's how it's got to be, obviously. Okay. But yeah. So they hide that fact. You don't tell that you're spinning. So I tell people <laughs> who are going down to Disney, I'm like, you should absolutely ride this ride. But you got to look forward and don't move your head. Don't turn your right. head. Yeah, lie, right. Exactly. You're going to get different signals. And I tell them, like, listen, since I'm telling you not to do it, you're going to want to do it. Yeah, right. trust me, because what will happen is not only do you get sick, but you can't really you end up throwing up sideways oh, <laughs> and like yeah. it happens. So like ride with people you trust. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. With a with a barrier, with a with partitions around you. You know, yeah. it's something else. Uh, <laughs> I've heard it's a great ride. I've yeah. heard it's a great ride. I just don't want anybody thrown up on. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, <laughs> ride with people you trust. Um. So two last ones here. Uh, I guess, okay, you know, sure. most of being an astronaut is you're not flying. And, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, day-to-day is really like that. So I'm curious uh, how how much was uh, the actual job, how much did it compare to what you expected? You know, I think a lot of people don't have that visibility into, like, what the day-to-day life is really like. So, you know, was it basically what you expected? Were you surprised by any aspects of it? Um. Let's see. By the time, so, um, you know, I, in my previous job, I get to work with astronauts and I get to hang out in building four, which is where their offices were. And so I got it. I had a pretty decent snapshot of yeah. what, uh, life as an astronaut was like. And, oh, I would go to, you know, we were at the payload and a crew would show up. So I'd, I'd see him go to meetings and do all this sort of, um, mundane stuff. And uh, I guess my take is that it's as fun as people think it is. I mean, we get to do really cool stuff, right? Yeah. We get to fly in T-38s and we get to uh, dive in the big pool and we get to, you know. Uh, so it is as fun as you think it is. It's probably not as glamorous as you think it is. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you know, you, you, you get accepted to the ASNAP program. You're a, a big hotshot you know, you go down to NASA and they give you a parking space and the parking space is about a quarter mile from, you know, from, from where you, yeah. from your door. Right. And, and you think, well, you know, I, I got an assigned parking space, but you know, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it's, I'm not, I'm not being treated like a, you know, a, a king here. Yeah. Um, I try to run people. But it's a job. They're people. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It, it's a job. And yeah, I, honestly, it's, it's a, it's a great job. And, uh, you know, so, um, but the day-to-day stuff is, um, you know, there's a lot more for people who don't know anything about being an astronaut. You know, it's you go to meetings and you go to staff meetings and you fill out expense reports and you, you know, you do the mundane stuff that most jobs, um, especially technical jobs, uh, you know, uh, involve. Um, you your your job there at, at NASA is to be to prepare yourself for spaceflight. So it's studying a lot and it's practicing a lot. Um, and, uh, uh, but so, you know, it, it, for me, it met my expectations. I knew the cool stuff we get to do. I knew the mundane stuff that we have to do. Um, you're a government employee. So that was the first time I had been a government employee. So that was a change. I had to learn how to be a government employee and there's a lot of regulation and expectations there. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, but it, it you know it, it, you you learn 
the camaraderie down there is fantastic. You know, you've got, uh, you're in a community of, uh, of handpicked people and the hand, you're handpicked because um, you get along well and you're fun to be around. And so now you're, you're around 50 other people that are fun to be around. And right. it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot, it's, it's, a, it's a, there's some great camaraderie. Um, but as a job, yeah, it, it is a job. And uh, it's just that you do get to do some really fun, uh, cool stuff. Um, so you actually mentioned how, how it's different being a government employee and a friend passed along a question uh, saying, you know, you've worked both as an astronaut and in private space industry. So you have like this kind of perspective from both sides. Uh, do you think like what, in your opinion, if anything, would have to change on like the government side to make it easier for like more people to be able to fly? You know, it seems like like one thing that's kind of eye-opening to me learning about shuttle was mm. it was fairly recently that even companies could just go and like launch something that wasn't really a thing until the 80s right it was like very ad right. hoc and had to kind of work it out and we're kind of barely right. scraping into people being able to do it so like you know what do you think we need to change to make to clear the road for that well um you're right commercial space uh i mean i was in the I worked in, in my old company. I worked on the Pegasus program, that air-launched rocket. Oh, yeah. And the question was, who regulates that, those launches? Who's, who's responsible? What government agency is responsible for that? And if we go to the, to the middle of the Pacific Ocean and launch, which we can do, who, who's, who's responsible for that? So there, there was a bunch of regulation that had to be straightened out about uh, who's responsible and Department of Transportation or FAA or, you know, all these agencies. And so I think that's been, seems like that's been uh, at least, you know, there's a process, it seems like. Um, what needs to happen? Um, well, so the, first of all, the mindset, and I think it really has changed. The mindset that, that governments do the important space work. And uh, I think the great thing about Crew Dragon is that, um, that, you know, now a contractor, a private contractor for a for-profit contractor, uh, sh has shown that they can fly astronauts, uh, at least to low earth orbit. Yeah. So, um, that mindset is changing and, uh, and it had, you know, n now many other companies can think about that and think about ways to do it more, uh, cost fit cost efficiently. And, and, um, and so that, that will help, um, initially working for the government, one of the things that I found inhibiting, especially in spaceflight was, uh, many more layers of bureaucracy. And so, uh, and, and also more, um, more compartments to have to check. So if you wanted to do something interesting, I don't know, you know, fly a particular experiment or whatever, it, 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 the, the hoops that you had to go through, the, no, the number of, of layers of management you had to check with, and then the number of departments that you had to go check with, um, felt like it felt like it was a little ridiculous. Now you can justify all those, right? You can justify it with safety and and uh, needing to understand the full, uh, you know, um, so that everybody understands what you're doing. But but you can imagine at a smaller company where um, that you just you, you're you're taking the initiative to do something. Everybody's happy that you're doing it. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it's the, the bureaucracy is less. I don't know. I'm not, I don't want to badmouth bureaucracy. No. Yeah. I understand. 
it, but but uh, uh, but you know, there's probably a balance. There's probably a balance, uh, and uh, um, that's that was my feeling about that was that was that was eye opening to me when I joined the government is uh, the number of committees and the number of panels and the number of uh, review boards and the number of all this stuff um, that uh, that I wasn't aware of from coming from commercial. Yeah. All right. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, let's see. I think I got this one. It might be impossible to answer, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> okay. So again, it might be a lot easier for me to ask that not knowing what it's like on the inside is why do people leave? <laughs> like, I imagine it's going to be different sure. for everyone, but like every time I'm reading about someone, I see they flew twice. It's like you flew twice and you yeah, left this. Right. Like, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because I still call it the best job in the world. It is. I think it is the best job in the world. And so how come I'm not doing it? <laughs> how come I gave it up? Um, so I can uh, let me speak personally. I'll tell you what, why I gave it up. So um, I got I got I applied and got selected to be an astronaut when I was single. Then I got married as an astronaut and then uh, flew my first flight before children. And then I flew my second flight with uh, with two toddlers and uh, I got back from, and that was a long duration flight. So I got a short shuttle flight and a long space station stay. And I got back and uh, the, 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 the experience for families and the people that are on the ground is much harder than for us uh, yeah. in space emotionally. And also logistically, it's much more difficult. So when we go to space station, in my time frame, when we trained for space station, it was about a three, three and a half year training flow. And about half that time was spent out of the house, meaning Russia or Germany or Canada or Tokyo or something. Yeah. And so tons of travel, tons of time away from family. And so, um, you know, I had a young family and I felt like, and I, and I had the privilege of doing incredible things. And, um, uh, did I want to go up again? Sure. Was I willing to spend another three years uh, being a transient in my family for uh, for another opportunity? Yeah. In my mind, uh, that wasn't that wasn't the good trade. Right. And so, um, plus, you know, you and, and you know, everybody wants to, to fly. And, and in the station, uh, in the station era, yeah. you know, we're flying. What is it? Five or six astronauts a year yeah uh as opposed to shuttle era when we were flying 35 or 40 astronauts a year yeah and so you know there's a line behind you and you want to see those guys uh, those men and women get their flights yeah and so uh uh i guess i felt like the trade was the marginal benefit for going through another launch camp another training flow yeah uh, was not not big enough for uh the pain that and you know, missing, missing, watching my kids grow up, uh, that I would miss out on. And I was young enough where, uh, I thought, well, I could start career 3.0 yeah. and, uh, and find something else to do. So I, I am every, I am jealous every time I see my buddies, uh, get up there and floating around and I wish I could go back up. I wish I could have an hour sitting in the cupola and watching the earth roll by. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, we leave for various reasons. And, um, uh, for me, it was, uh, I, just didn't uh, didn't want to miss uh, spend as much time away from home and uh, and well get to watch my kids grow up and and uh, not put my not put them through the the 
terror of, 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 of going to space and living in space for months at a time. I think that makes a ton of sense. Uh, so I'll, you know, last question will be a really easy one here, which is, do you listen to any other podcasts? Well, I listen to a lot of podcasts. <clears throat> any recommendations so, for yes, us? I, do. Uh, I feel like they're all well-worn, but, uh, but, um, 99% Invisible is a favorite. Uh, Freakonomics is a favorite. Uh, the Anthropocene Reviewed is a great one. I don't know how popular that is. I don't think I know John that Green, he's... Yeah, the Anthropocene Reviewed. He takes a human uh, experience and he rates them on a five-point scale. So like Amazon, like an Amazon review for That's... like meningitis or for <laughs> you know Diet Dr. Pepper. Right. So it's really interesting. He's an incredible writer. And uh, his his essays are riveting, I think. So um, my only complaint is he rates things on a five-point scale, which is not proper. You should not rate on a five-point scale. Why is um, that? You should rate on a four-point scale. Five-point scale gives you the option to p- pick a three. You uh-huh. don't want – if you want a rating, don't give anybody the middle choice. Huh. Make them choose – make them get off the fence. That's a, Dan Tani's advice. <laughs> um, but uh, no, but I'm – the. Uh, the space above us is great. I've been I've been really enjoying uh, listening to them, hearing stories of, uh, of, of of people I know and of the, and, and stories that I didn't. Um, and uh, I thought the uh, I thought the Gemini and Apollo stuff was fantastic. So good good job there. Well, thank you. That's I, as you imagine that means a lot coming from someone who's been there. So <laughs> well, I appreciate. I'm it. just I'm I'm a fan like you are of those of the of that era. Yeah, and so. Uh, um, and on the, I thought the Skylab, you, you, you know, nobody talks about Skylab. And so I thought the way you covered Skylab was great. I thought it was really, really interesting. The so. secret crown jewel. It was so much fun yeah. to get into it. Like, no, I, I think I called it the anti-Apollo. Like, no one's heard of it, but it's so important. <laughs> right. And you, the cool thing is you can walk around the engineers, the development unit, the EDU at the Smithsonian. Yeah. And you can, uh, so I, what I have, I have not been back there since I listened to, uh, your podcast about space lab, uh, but I, but I, or Skylab, but I want to do that. I want to listen to it again and then walk around because, uh, there's, uh, you know, so much more to learn about it than, than just walking through it, uh, cold. All right. Awesome. Well, it's been really great and truly a privilege to be able to talk to you today. You know, hopefully I can cook up uh, some more questions, especially I'll be having sure. some questions once the uh, podcast timeline gets to 1996. So you can count on that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing the sardines uh, make their appearance and uh, um, cool. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure. I let's do it anytime. All I'm right. happy to contribute any way I can. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. All right. And there you have it. I've never done an interview before, but I had an absolute blast with this one. I'm looking forward to peppering Dan with some more questions when the astronaut class of 1996, the Sardines, join the story. I want to extend a sincere thank you to Dan Tani for listening to the show in the first place, and then for giving me a decent chunk of his time in order to answer my grab bag of questions. Next time, let's hear about the rest of STS-51 and we'll finally learn about the mission that I kept accidentally getting in my search results when reading about STS-51A, STS-51B, STS-51C. Next time, it's STS-51-nothing. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.